0: We're very fortunate to have Professor Erwin Cochner with us today. Professor Cochner is a member of the Canadian Parliament uh, now. He's a professor on leave from McGill University in Human Rights. He was the past Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada, and has over the last several decades been the Human Rights and Legal Counsel for such important people as Nelson Mandela, Sakharov, um, Sharansky, Yakov Timmerman from South America, and Saeed Ibrahim. So it's a distinct honor to have Mr. Kottler, Professor Kottler here with us today.
1: Thank You Charles, I very much appreciate the kind words of introduction. I, I must say that uh, my if he were here, would oblige me to offer a repost or a rebuttal uh, to any uh, excessive or exaggerated introductions that I get that is prompted by uh, the natural outcomes of, of uncritical friendship uh, which exists between uh, Charles and my, myself. And uh, I am reminded of his rebuttal by Charles asking about the technology here. And I have to make full disclosure in order
2: to share this story, which is a true and legendary in our family. And that is, I happen to be uh, technologically illiterate, or to use the more politically correct term, technologically challenged. I don't know how emails work, uh, computers, uh, video,
1: uh, any of the manifestations of, of uh, uh, technology. In fact, I probably couldn't even get a job in the Department of Justice today, where that is, a, where computer literacy is a requirement at any level entry uh, in the department over which I presided for several years. Well, as it happens, my son is now 19 when he was uh, just close to three years of, of age, he somehow had a prescient sense, I didn't know how any of these things worked, and maybe would never know how any of these things uh, worked. And so he came to me one day with a, a rather impish right, grin, which uh, still remains his, his uh, trademark, and he looked up at me, and, and he said, Daddy, can you help me fix the video? And I said to him, well, youngie, you know, I don't know how to fix the video. And he looked, and the impish smile broke out into a grin, and he said, I know, Daddy. All I'm asking to do is to pick me up because I can't reach it. <laughs> Whereupon, le- later in the day, uh, uh, my daughter Gila came to me and she said, Daddy, do you know what uh, he only told me? And I said, no, he said, Gila, Daddy made me a nice man, but he's not very smart. He's not very smart. And, uh, just to give you an example of intergenerational continuity, my grandchild, uh, when he was also around the age, same age, three years of age, asked me one day if I'd like to play Lego and I said, yeah, not too good at Lego either and he came out with a Lego set looked at me, ran back and came out with a much simpler Lego set <laughs> so I guess uh, this uh, tells you the ambience in, in which uh, I live and, and the kind of proper uh, rebuttals and, that I get uh, to, to what I do and to make sure that I have a humbling presence at all times I'm delighted uh, to be here today at Yale, you know, this really represents a a homecoming for me. I'm here on the occasion of uh, the 40th anniversary of the graduation of my law class in in 1966. And more than that, uh, Yale has been with me all these years since uh, my graduation. In terms of education, in terms of inspiration, in terms of lasting friendships, I feel uh, the Influence and impact of, of Yale uh, in everything uh, that I do, including some of the great uh, teachers and, and mentors uh, that I have here, and some of the best students you can find anywhere who acted then and still do today as uh, teachers and, and mentors. I'm also delighted to be able to be here on the occasion of uh, the establishment by Yale, and I want to pay tribute to Yale for doing it, uh, for establishing the first. Yale Initiative for the Interdisciplinary Study of Anti Semitism, the first university based inquiry of its kind anywhere in, in North America, and which will put uh, Yale University at the cutting edge, if I can use a cliche, but cliches are sometimes also true, at the cutting edge you know, of interdisciplinary scholarship uh, with respect to one of the great uh, scourges, not only of our time, but the every time and I want to compliment Charles Small because it was really his uh, initiation, uh, his inspiration and his tenacity uh, that uh, brought this about And I expect that this will have and make a enduring contribution uh, to the world of scholarship and academe not only uh, here in, in Yale uh, but beyond and I'm pleased also to be able to participate uh, in the common cause which brings us together, which take to be the struggle against racism, against hatred, against anti-Semitism, and in particular, and I don't use this word lightly or easily, I'm referring to uh, genocidal anti-Semitism, the, the word whose name one shudders even uh, to have to uh, acknowledge, uh, but that has become one of the most Dangerous phenomenon, which I'll turn to in several moments, that we have today in terms of uh, the study and appreciation of anti Semitism. You know, my, and I would take this also because it's going to be a way in which I will take this whole notion of the struggle against racism, hatred, anti Semitism, genocide, as being part of the larger struggle for human rights, for human uh, dignity for really international uh, justice. And I'm reminded, and I was about to say that, two lessons that my father uh, told me uh, when I was growing up, which remained uh, with me and almost acted as a moral compass, not that I always was able to follow them, but I believe I understood uh, and increasingly understood the import of that message. The first was, uh, and he would quote really that biblical injunction of justice, justice, shall you pursue the importance of pursuing justice. At all times, as you put it, this is equal to all the other commandments combined. And the second part of that was, but justice can't just be an abstraction. If you want to pursue justice, you have to feel injustice. You have to feel the injustice about you, so then you can engage in the pursuit of justice. And that's true if we want to pursue the struggle against racism, anti-Semitism, and particularly genocidal anti-Semitism. We have to have a sense you know, of the manifestations of this uh, horror uh, in our uh, day. And I recall when, shortly after I was sworn in as, as Minister of Justice that the first words, pardon me if I'm just, I thought I turned it off, but you can see it. I don't have the sense even self The words I spoke after being sworn in as Minister of Justice and Attorney General is almost as if my father was speaking uh, through me when I said that I will be guided in my work by one overarching principle, that of justice, justice shall you pursue. And within that, the promotion and protection of equality, of equality not just as a foundational principle, which it is in our Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and American Law and Jurisprudence, but equality is an organizing principle for the building of a just society and the promotion and protection of human dignity, the building of a society that is not only just, but one that is uh, compassionate and uh, humane. And that provides the almost juridical framework uh, for my approach uh, to the uh, study of human rights and the new uh, anti Jewishness. Because we are witnessing, today indeed we have been witnessing for some time, Uh, I would say that new anti-Jewishness has been uh, developing incrementally, uh, at times imperceptibly, uh, but always uh, in a very, uh, if one would take a look at what is happening, almost uh, indulgently uh, for some thirty years now. And what we now see, and what we are now experiencing, is a escalating, virulent, global, and even lethal anti-Jewishness, a new anti-Jewishness that is grounded in traditional or classical anti-Semitism, but in fact is uh, distinguishable from it. That first found institutional and juridical invocation in the United Nations Zionism is racism resolution, but which has gone uh, beyond that, a new anti Jewishness, sometimes use that term changed. with anti Semitism, for which one needs almost a new vocabulary to define it. But which can best be defined if one looks for one liners in, in this regard, can best be defined as the discrimination against, denial of, assault upon the right of Israel and the Jewish people to live as an equal member of the family of nations. In its most benign form, if one could call it benign, the new anti-Jewishness finds expression in a legalized form of anti-Semitism where the singling out of Israel and the Jewish people for differential and discriminatory treatment takes place under the auspices of the United Nations, pursuant to the alleged authority of international law under cover of human rights, for which the World Conference Against Racism in in Durban uh, became almost metaphor and message of that singling out of Israel and the Jewish people for differential discriminatory treatment. As somebody who was there, I'll be pleased to uh, respond to any queries about uh, that uh, conference. In its most lethal form, in its most lethal form, It refers to the singling out and the targeting of Israel and uh, the Jewish people for genocidal assault and a convergence of both politicide and genocide in the seeking by the public acknowledgement and affirmation of those who seek it. The witness testimony is clear here in, in that regard. The seeking of the destruction of Israel and the killing of Jews wherever they may be. In other words, if we were to take a kind of social science perspective for a moment, traditional or classical anti-centered was the discrimination against or denial of the rights of Jews to live as equal members in whatever host society uh, they inhabit. And basically, one could call it a diaspora-centered inquiry, which would study with certain indices of uh, measurement such as discrimination Uh, against Jews in housing, education, and and employment, and would study and largely more in terms of the rights or the equality of individual Jews in the host society in which they live, or the Jews as a minority. But I'm speaking about a different kind here. I'm speaking about a global approach. And that is why I'm very responsive to the kind of interdisciplinary Yale initiative in this regard. I'm speaking about a global approach to a new anti-Jewishness, which speaks about the discrimination against, denial of, or assault upon the right of Israel and the Jewish people to live as an equal member of the family of nations. Now what is common to both forms of anti-Semitism, traditional or classical, and the new anti Jewish, is discrimination and denial, its uh, variations, uh, be it in terms of uh, delegitimation, uh, defamation, demonization, and the like. So there is a commonality in that regard. The difference is that we have moved from the discrimination against Jews as individuals or focusing upon them in terms of their minority status in any host country to the discrimination against the Jews as a people and in terms of Israel as having emerged, if I may put it, as the collective Jew among the nations or even uh, when such occurs as the Demonized a Jew among the nations. The problem is that while we have indicators for analyzing traditional, for classical Semitism, we have yet to develop any indicators to identify, and thereby monitor, and evaluate, and address, and redress the new Semitism. And so what I'd like to do today is to share with you some indices of this new anti-Jewishness, how can we identify and thereby be able to assess and evaluate the new anti-Jewishness? I'm going to use, as I indicated earlier, a frame of reference which is a rights-based approach. Anchor my uh, analysis in in terms of anti-discrimination law, human rights law, international uh, human rights law, nothing technical, legalistic. uh, I don't want to overly bore and burden you uh, with a certain kinds of semantic categories, but I will use a kind of rights-based language because that is very often the language in which this new anti-Jewishness finds expression. It becomes the mask or the protective cover under which uh, we find today these expressions or manifestations of the, of the new anti-Jewishness. That makes it so sophisticated and so insidious. Because genocidal anti-Semitism, to which I will turn in a moment, is clear. It is clear by the public avowal and in publicly declared intention of the genocide. But when anti-Semitism marches under the banner of anti-racism, so that the struggle against racism is one which makes it inclusive of uh, anti, it becomes itself a kind of. Uh, anti-Semitic manifestation, as I'll point out in a moment with regard to Turkey. Or it matches under the banner of the United Nations or human rights or international. That's much more sophisticated and that's much more insidious because we're not prone to discovering it there. One would not think of looking under the banner of the anti-racist struggle or under the banner of human rights to find that there may lurk the new uh, anti-Jewishness. That's why we don't have any indicators to be able to identify that. And what I want to do now is go through a series of indicators of the new anti-Jewishness. I, I might say that each one of these indicators, in, in my view, uh, could themselves be the subject of a serious uh, and sustained study by uh, the uh, Yale uh, uh, Center. And so you'll pardon me if in order to try to identify uh, these uh, indicators, I will do so in a somewhat a summary or abbreviated form. The first one, I will take a little bit of time because of the globality and the uh, danger that it poses. I'm referring to uh, genocidal, what I call, in fact, state-sanctioned, if not state-orchestrated genocidal antisemitism. As I say, I don't use these words lightly or easily. One of the things I was taught even when I was here at Yale by Professor Harold Lasso, one of my professors, if you say everything is anti-Semitic then nothing is anti-Semitic. If you speak of genocide loosely then nothing will be uh, genocidal. And so I'm going to anchor myself not in what I ascribe as being genocidal anti-Semitism, but what is held out by those who seek to promote and perpetrate it themselves. And I'm using the definitional approaches of the International Convention on the prevention and punishment of genocide which among other things, along with the more recent treaty for an International Criminal Court, prohibits, and I'm quoting directly from both of those conventions, the direct and public incitement to genocide. One of the tragedies we have is that we have always intervened when we have intervened with respect to genocide after the fact. We have never sufficiently intervened to prevent the genocide to begin with. But the Convention does not speak only about holding those who perpetrate a genocide accountable. It speaks specifically the prevention of the genocide to begin with. And there are, in that regard, some four manifestations of what are called state sanctions genocidal anti-Semitism. The first is the toxic convergence in Ahmadinejad's Iran of the advocacy of the most horrific of crimes, namely genocide is expressed in multiple ways but through the pithy saying that uh, One must wipe Israel off the map, as the Imam says. Everybody quotes Wipe Israel off the map, they forget the religious invocation of that. And so you have the toxic convergence of the advocacy of the most horrific of crimes, namely genocide, embedded in the most virulent of hatreds, namely anti Semitism, and impelled by the publicly declared intent to acquire nuclear weapons so as to be able to eliminate Israel, quote-unquote, in one single store. Unless there be any doubt or ambiguity about the intention, you have the parading in the streets of Tehran of a shahab 3 missile draped in the emblem, wipe Israel off the map with the religious invocation uh, uh, underpinning it. And so you have the publicly declared intent to seek a Mideast genocide at the same time as Ahmadinejad also denies the European genocide of the Jews. And as if this were not enough, and this has been ignored, Ahmadinejad also warns that any Muslims, any Muslims who recognize Israel will burn, as he put it, in the Ummah of Islam. And so this state-sanctioned genocidal anti-Semitism, as I say, through his own words and publicly declared intent and avowance, and emerges not only as a threat to Israel and world jury as it does, but really as a threat to international uh, peace and security, indeed, as a crime against uh, humanity. And so one might ask oneself, well, what does one do with respect to this genocide, anti-Semitism? One of the things that I have been troubled by is the fact that we have been debating for some time now how to respond to whether to Ahmadinejad's intent to acquire nuclear weapons for the purposes as he has put it, but where he otherwise, when it comes to that debate, says it's for the peaceful uses of nuclear energy. But in that debate, the issue of the genocidal intent to which those nuclear weapons might be put, that is almost sanitized in the discussion. And so a number of us uh, lawyers have gotten together in order to draft a proposed indictment to bring Ahmadinejad before the International Criminal Court for the public and direct incitement to genocide in clear contravention of the prohibition in the International Treaty for the Criminal Court and in the uh, Genocide Convention. As well, we are asking our respective governments, some of us who, who are Canadians, who are Americans or Europeans, it's not that well known. But state parties to the Genocide Convention, and I alluded to this earlier, but state parties to the Genocide Convention have not only a right, but indeed a responsibility to enforce the Convention, have a responsibility to prevent genocide, and not just in terms of intervening you know, uh, belatedly and tragically after the fact, something we're not even uh, doing in uh, Darfur. Uh, and if anybody wants to to that issue. I would, you know, one of the interesting things, I'm trying to think about Darfur is that, you know, you might say, well, you know, at least you brought up another issue of genocide, nothing to do with the Jews, except when the United Nations finally and belatedly, at the end of August, after three years of a genocide by attrition, as I referred to, it, began to accelerate, when almost, it, it pains one to have even speak about a genocide, it was called a genocide in slow motion uh, now being accelerated after 400,000 already dead, 2.5 million displaced, 3.5 million on a, a humanitarian uh, support system and where this past summer represented one of the worst ravages of those crimes against uh, humanity. But at the end of August, after the United Nations Security Council finally and belatedly passed a resolution to authorize a multinational protection force on the ground to put an end to the genocide, to stop the killing, the president of Sudan said this was, quote, unquote, a Zionist plot. And this was organized by the Jews who wanted to enrich themselves. And they were, in in fact, behind the United Nations Uh, resolution. Shades of the new protocols and uh, the like. But what is existent in the Genocide Convention are a panoply of remedies that state parties, like the United States, like Canada, like Argentina, where I was last week and brought this proposal before them as well, a panoply of remedies to hold genocidal intention, criminal intention accountable. The first is that a country like the United States or Canada, any of the state parties, can refer Ahmadinejad's criminal and genocidal intentionality to the United Nations and hold them accountable there. Two, that a state party like the United States can launch a complaint against Iran which is also a state party to the Genocide Convention and where provision lies in this Genocide Convention for an interstate complaint remedy with respect to the prevention of genocide as authorized by the Genocide Convention itself. And the third is that states can refer to the UN Security Council a situation like genocidal intent to the International uh, Criminal Court, and you can say, well, yeah, but the United States is not a member of the International Criminal Court. However, any state, even if not a member, can refer, by reason of being a state party to the Genocide Convention, refer the situation to the UN Security Council, which then can do it to the International Criminal Court, and I would remind you that the UN, the United States did support uh, bringing uh, Sudanese leaders to justice before the International Criminal Court, even though they are not uh, a state party to the International Criminal Court Treaty, because uh, they could otherwise do so under uh, the general uh, principles of the Genocide uh, Convention and the ICC Treaty as well. So that's the First, uh, first category of state-sanctioned genocidal anti-Semitism is represented by Ahmadinejad's Iran, but it doesn't end there. You've also got the religious fatwas that are pronounced regularly that call for the killing of the Jews and the destruction, killing Jews wherever they may be, and uh, the destruction. Of Israel, I can quote chapter and verse in, in that regard, but the only thing I want to say just by way of maybe metaphor is that Israel in that regard has emerged not only as the collective Jew among the nations, but it has emerged as the Salman Rushdie among the nations. And just as there was a religious fatwa that targeted Salman Rushdie because he allegedly blasphemed Islam, so are there religious fatwas that, in fact, call for the destruction of Israel and the Jewish people because they are, quote-unquote, the defilers of Islam. Which brings me to the third category of state-sanction, genocidal anti-Semitism. I'm referring to uh, the charters, the covenants of uh, terrorist movements themselves, like Uh, Hamas or uh, Hezbollah and I can go on and while Ahmadinejad's genocidal intentions are declaratory, Hamas's genocidal intentions are covenantal. You only have to read the covenant which few have read Hamas's covenant and they take that as seriously as Americans or Canadians would take our Bill of Rights. I mean, this is their charter, and that charter not only calls for the destruction of Israel and the killing of Jews, but it refers to the Jewish people as being, you know, the sons of uh, apes and monkeys and and, and pigs, the kind of dehumanizing language that comes out of that uh, Nazi rhetoric tragedy, and where it speaks of the Jews as being responsible for the First World War, the Second World War, all the evils of the world, the protocols uh, embedded in the charter and the like. But in a word, this first indicator of anti-Sem, of the new anti Jewishness, namely state-sanctioned genocidal anti-Semitism is a lethal form of incitement, racism, and hatred. And there are three manifestations of it, as I mentioned, Ahmadinejad's Iran, the religious fatwas, the charters, and covenants of the terrorist movements. And we should take their words as seriously as they intended and be reminded of the obligation to prevent genocide whenever that public and direct incitement finds expression. A second indicator of the new anti-Jewishness is what might be called uh, political anti-Semitism. And by political anti-Semitism, I'm referring here uh, yet again to three manifestations of this new political anti-Semitism. The first expression of it is the discrimination against or denial of or assault upon the Jewish people's right to self-determination, a right that is consecrated both in both of the international covenants on civil and political rights and economic, social and cultural rights, the only right of its kind that appears in two of the major international uh, human rights uh, treaties. But which discrimination or denial, as Martin Luther King uh, put it, and I quote, is a denial to the Jews of the same right, the right to self-determination that we accord to African nations and all other peoples of the globe. In short, it is anti-Semitism. To the extent, therefore, that Israel has emerged as a kind of civil religion of world Jewry, a kind of organizing idiom of Jewish self-determination, this new anti-Semitism in its effect, if not in its intent, emerges in contemporary terms as an assault on the religious and national and cultural uh, sensibility of the Jewish people. A second form of political anti-Semitism involves the discrimination against uh, denial of or assault upon the legitimacy, if not existence, of Israel itself as a Jewish state. Indeed, this may be regarded as the contemporary analog of classical or traditional anti-Semitism which discriminated against and denied the very legitimacy of the Jewish religion. In other words, anti-Semitism tends to focus on whatever is the organizing the organizing center of Jewish self-expression or self-definition at any given moment. When it was the Jewish religion, then you had Expression in terms of discrimination and uh, denial and assault, assault upon on the Jewish religion. When it is moved to the Jewish people and to Israel as a collective Jew among uh, the nations, then you have this form of delegitimization and denial and the last manifestation of political uh, anti-Semitism is what I would call the demonization of Israel. Or the attribution to Israel of all the evils of the world. In other words, Israel as the poisoner of the international wells. And again, just as in classical anti Semitism, the Jew is held up as being the poisoner of the wells, so in contemporary anti Semitism, the Jewish state is held up to be the poisoner of the wells. And whereas in Classical anti-Semitism, as my colleague uh, Per Almark uh, in Sweden uh, pointed out, there was the attempt to make the, in pre-state days, the world Judenrime, there is the attempt to make the world Judenstadt rhyme, and to get rid of uh, the Jewish state, and to do so by this kind of, uh, as well, demonology, as a kind of prologue to its justification. And that leads me now to two other indicators. The first two that i mentioned to you, state-sanctioned genocidal anti-Semitism, or political anti-Semitism, are clear and compelling in their own right by the acknowledgement and assertion of those who would wish to perpetrate the anti-Semitism themselves. With this testimony here is replete in terms of Genocidal anti-Semitism, turn into political anti-Semitism. But we now come to two, four indicators of anti-Semitism that are more sophisticated. And because they're more sophisticated, they're more insidious. I alluded to them earlier, but I will just make some further uh, comment and conceptualize them as follows. The third indicator, and the one that starts on this road to a more uh, sophisticated and insidious form of new anti jewishness is what I would call ideological anti-Semitism. By ideological anti-Semitism, I'm referring to the phenomenon where anti-Jewishness marches under the banner of the struggle against racism, where anti-Jewishness in effect emerges as one of the, or I should put where anti-racism emerges as a protective cover for the carrying out of uh, anti-Semitism. Now, in its first expression, we had it in terms of Zionism is racism, the denial of the ideological raison d'etre for the Jewish people and a Jewish state. But I want to say clearly that I am not of the school who regards anti-Zionism as being anti-Semitism. I believe that you can be anti-Zionist without necessarily being anti-Semitic. I believe that you can engage in serious and sustained and rigorous uh, critiques of Israeli uh, policy and and practice and not in any way be anti-Semitic. I'm not speaking about that. I'm not even speaking about Zionism as racism which was uh, the late Senator Daniel uh, Moynihan uh, said gave uh, the abomination of anti-semitism the appearance of legal sanction at the time that the United Nations uh, passed. I'm not even, I'm, you know, I find it offensive, I find it scurrilous, but I'm not yet prepared to say that it crosses the line. Where it crosses the line are in two other manifestations of what I call ideological anti-semitism, and that is the reference to Israel and Zionism as an apartheid state, and more, the reference to Israel and Zionism as not only being an apartheid state, but a Nazi state. Now, why do I say that those cross the line? They cross the line because, as one saw at Durban, the clarion call with respect to the struggle against anti-racism, the struggle against racism was to say as follows: that the struggle against racism in the 20th century required the dis- dismantling of South Africa as an apartheid state. The struggle against racism in the 21st century requires the dismantling of Israel as an apartheid state. So the issue here is not simply the ascription of Zionism and Israel as being apartheid in policy or practice. I wouldn't like that, but it's not anti-Semitic in my view, though some will say to say that. But where it speaks to the very essence and being of Israel and Zionism, as being not only apartheid, as not only Israel being an original sin, but calls for the dismantling of that apartheid state, that's what crosses the line. Because then we are moving not only from delegitimization, but where delegitimization becomes the basis for the denial of Israel's right to exist. And, you know, after the World Conference Against Racism in Durban were replete with these metaphors and messages of, you know, Zionism, Israel, racism, apartheid, Nazism. An interesting thing took place, there was, the call in Durban went out, you know, not only for Israel as a, an apartheid state, but one should divest in Israel because it is an apartheid state. Again, I want to say I oppose the divestment line. I don't call that, you know, in and of itself, anti-Semitic. I'm very careful in terms of what I would ascribe as being anti-Semitic in terms of uh, these indicators and the like. But what happened at the what it was called the national uh, divestment uh, conference? But what happened was at that conference there were some who said, "Okay, you know, Israel apartheid divest," but put forth a resolution that if Israel would become a democratic state and not an apartheid state, then it should be supported resolution was defeated because it was not just divestment that was sought it was the clarion call of the dismantling of this apartheid state and you know if there is one great evil of the second half of the 20th century it's apartheid you know the very label (laughs) provides the incitement it's almost as if you need no further commentary. But if you do, then you not only refer to Israel as a racist apartheid, but Nazi state. If it's a Nazi state, it doesn't deserve to exist. And so the call for the dismantling of this apartheid Nazi state becomes, as it were, almost a moral imperative, a moral injunction. Because we have an obligation, do we not, in the post-Nazi world to dismantle apartheid Nazi states, to dismantle the model of South Africa in the 21st century, the model of the Nazis in the uh, 21st century. So not only does dismantling come as a form of incitement, but held out as a moral obligation. And all of those who support this racist apartheid, nazi state are themselves collaborators or accomplices in its uh, crimes and that has a chilling effect particularly in the campus culture where the campus culture rightly so is a culture of human rights no one wants to appear to be anti-human rights no student wants to appear to be identified with apartheid and with uh, nazism and so the holding out of Israel in a world in which human rights has become almost the new secular religion of our time, the holding out of Israel as a racist, apartheid, Nazi state, Israel becomes, as it were, the new antichrist of our time. And nobody wants to go near that moral leper which deserves to be dismantled and done away with. That's why I say this ideological anti-Semitism is so pernicious, because it is not publicly about genocidal anti-Semitism, it is not publicly about political anti-Semitism, it's under the banner of the struggle against racism, and we all want to struggle against racism. But we cannot fulfill the struggle against racism unless we dismantle this racist apartheid Nazi state. That's what makes this ideological anti-Semitism as I say so sophisticated but so scurrilous and so dangerous. This brings me to a fourth a fourth indicator no less sophisticated and insidious what I would call, made allusion to it earlier, legalized anti-Semitism. Where anti-Semitism just as under ideological anti-Semitism marched under the banner of the struggle against racism this marches under the banner of the UN, human rights, and international law. And while there's great skepticism, I know, in uh, the United States about the, the UN, less so in Canada, which takes the UN as a kind of organizing idiom of our Canadian foreign policy, as, as, and elsewhere as well. But even in the United States, the country pays homage, certainly, to the struggle for human rights struggle for international law. And here we have a number, a number of manifestations of where anti-Semitism marches under the banner of human rights and under the auspices of the United Nations. The first, as I mentioned, was the World Conference Against Racism in Durban, uh, which turned into a racist conference against Israel and Jews, where a conference that was to commemorate The dismantling of South Africa as an apartheid state, as I said, turned into a conference that called for the dismantling of Israel as an apartheid state, and on and on. And I wrote a piece about this uh, recently, uh, but I won't go into it anymore. Other than to say, it's what happened in post-Durban that became the tipping point for the new anti-Jewishness. Durban concluded on September 8th, 8th, 9th, uh, 2001. The 9-11 took place several days later. One of my colleagues wrote that if 9-11 was the Kristallnacht of terror, then Durban was its Mein Kampf in terms of uh, the incitement. I don't want to make uh, the causality and not even the correlation, but what happened After 9-11 was the number of people in different parts of the world who began to say that in a kind of new protocols, that 9-11 was brought about by Israel and the Jews. And you know, you're going to find this astonishing. But in a poll recently in Canada about three weeks ago, a third of Canadians, Said that they believed that Israel and the Jews were partly responsible or wholly responsible for 9 11. I'm not talking about polls in the Muslim world, which show 60, 70% may believe that the Jews were responsible for 9 11. The second event that took place after Durban and called for by Durban, so I said the tipping point for the new anti Jewishness, this was the first coming together of the contracting parties. First, coming together, the contracting parties to the Geneva Convention, which is really part of almost customary international law with respect to the norms of international humanitarian law in armed conflict, the contracting parties to the genocide to the uh, Geneva Convention on the in terms of uh, respect for humanitarian norms in armed conflict never came together once. Whether we've talked about Cambodia. We talked about Balkans, we talked about Rwanda, I can go on and on, on the list of the killing fields. It never met once. The only time in the history since the adoption of the Geneva Conventions in 1949, the first time it met was 52 years later, post-Durban, as called for by Durban, when the contracting parties came together to put one state. One state only in the docket, namely Israel. And since Sudan doesn't make it, no other state has been put in the docket. And this under the rubric of international humanitarian law. And then came, in 2002, 3rd of May, and that was the meeting of the United Nations Commission on Human Rights. Now, people may not realize this, but the UN Commission on Human Rights, which Eventually became so grotesque uh, that, and its Alice in Wonderland approach to human rights that it was replaced by uh, several months ago by the UN uh, Human Rights Council, which regrettably is replicating uh, some of the uh, behavior of its predecessor, the U- UN Human Rights Commission. But the UN Human Rights Commission, for over 35 years, was the repository of international human rights law. One taught its case law, its jurisprudence and the like. Well, let me just tell you a little bit about this Alice in Wonderland, UN Human Rights Commission, and I'll move this indicator to a close. And it's as follows. On the agenda every year for the meeting of this UN Human Rights Commission, held under the auspices of the UN with the imprimatur of international law to give expression to international human rights and humanitarian law, was an agenda which in item 8 said human rights violations by Israel in the occupied territories, and item 9, human rights violations in the rest of the world. In other words, there was an agenda-specific item just for Israel, year after year, contrary to the procedures of the UN Human Rights Commission itself, which prohibited any singling out of any state for differential discriminatory uh, treatment, and so you had an of Monon situation where the conviction was pronounced even before the hearing began. And when the hearing began, you had year after year, five resolutions that would be passed against Israel. No more than one resolution against any other state, and where the major human rights violators enjoyed exculpatory immunity, so no resolution has yet to be passed against China, against Syria, against Iran, and I can go on. And so, what we learn from all this is really the old adage that while it may begin with Jews, it doesn't end with Jews. Because in seeking to single out Israel in an obsessive preoccupation, it gave exculpatory immunity to the real human rights violators and the real tragedy is not that this was prejudicial to Israel and the Jewish people, which it was. The real tragedy is that it undermines the integrity of the United Nations under whose auspices these meetings take place. It erodes respect for international law under whose authority these pronouncements are given. It undermines respect for human rights in whose name this new anti-Jewishness finds expression. And so I say that with regard to this fourth indicator, namely this legalized anti-Semitism, the prejudice that's caused is not simply to Israel and the Jewish people. Let me close by saying that I've gone through only four indicators. I've written elsewhere about 12 indicators time did not permit to go into any of the others, and in any case, uh, each of them them could be the subject of a year-long study in and of themselves. I want to conclude by saying the following, lest anything I said that adverse inferences be drawn from what I said. And it is this, no one should seek, and I certainly would not seek, that Israel should be above the law. Or that the Jewish people in, enjoy or should enjoy any special privilege or preference by reason of Jewish suffering the Holocaust and the like, Not at all. Israel, like any other state, must be responsible for any violations of international uh, human rights and humanitarian law, or international criminal law, and the like. And nobody should seek any special pleading for Israel or for the Jewish people. Problem I suggest to you is not that Israel seeks to be above the law, but that Israel, and this is in the benign form of the New anti anti-Jewish, but that Israel is being denied systematically equality before the law in the international arena. Not that Israel should respect human rights, which she must, but that the rights of Israel and the Jewish people, like any other state or people, deserve equal respect. Not that human rights standards should not be applied to Israel, which they must be, but that these standards must be applied equally to everyone else. And that is why I began by saying that the pursuit of justice has to carry with it the promotion and protection of equality as the basis for a just society that is true not only domestically but internationally. The UN Charter speaks of the equality of all states, large and small. And the promotion and protection of human dignity, where anti-Jewishness is an affront to the inherent dignity and worth of every human being, and an affront to the equal dignity and worth of all human beings, and an affront and an assault upon the rights of Jews to protection against uh, group-vilifying hate and hate crimes, and in particular, to protection against the worst of the new anti-Jewishness, the most lethal form of anti-Jewishness, namely state-sanctioned genocidal anti-Semitism, as I described it earlier. And I would say with regard to that, as with regard to everyone else, everything else in that regard, Israel is the canary in the contemporary, pantheon of evil. And as history has taught us only too well, while it may begin with Jews, it doesn't end with them. The struggle against anti-Semitism in particular, state-sanctioned genocidal anti-Semitism, is really at its core the struggle for all of us, the struggle for international justice, for human dignity, For human rights in the most profound sense in the word, this is injustice, as my father would say, in the most pervasive sense. You have to feel this injustice and you have to (coughs) pursue justice, which means combating this radical evil in our day in the name of humanity as a whole. I'm happy to take uh, questions, comments, criticisms, Yeah. Um. Okay, let, let me – I, I try to give some sense of the activist uh, side uh, when I said that with regard to uh, the state-sanctioned genocidal anti-Semitism, we did not want to uh, in any way uh, pass over it, sanitize it, indulge it, etc., but to combat that radical evil. Those of us uh, who, who felt that uh, if Our legal education and training meant anything, it meant to put to the use of combating this radical evil. That training, that's why we are seeking to bring Ahmadinejad to justice uh, for his public and direct incitement to genocide. In in my view, uh, this responds to a number of historical lessons which I sometimes feel we've forgotten. The first historical lesson, you know, and I'm mentioning this, I'm just thinking about we're meeting on the 60th anniversary of the Annunciation of the Nuremberg Principles in 1946. Those Nuremberg Principles were the forerunner of what became International Human Rights, Humanitarian and Criminal Law, which was holding the perpetrators accountable. A little over 70 years ago, there was another Nuremberg, it was, and this is the double entendre of Nuremberg, the Nuremberg of jackboots and non-judgments the Nuremberg of racism, of racism institutionalized as law, and the enduring lesson comes out of the Nazi Holocaust. And in fact, we saw this also in the Balkans and Rwanda, is that this state-sanctioned teaching of contempt, this demonizing of the other, this is where it all begins. As the Supreme Court of Canada put it, in upholding the constitutionality of anti-hate legislation. I know here, the United States, the First Amendment doctrine, the issue appears to be constitutionally different. I don't believe so. I don't believe that genocidal speech should be protected speech. And, And I've written about that elsewhere. So you talk about the activist and the scholar here comes together. And it comes together in the words of the Canadian Supreme Court, whereas they affirm that the Holocaust did not begin in the gas chambers. It began with words. These, as the court put it, are the chilling facts of history. These, as the court put it, are the catastrophic effects of racism. And I believe in that regard that we have to use all the legal frameworks at our disposal to hold these genocidaires, those who directly in public incite the genocide accountable, using all the panoply of legal remedies at our disposal and lawyer NGO groups can do some of it. States have to also undertake their responsibility under the Genocide Convention to prevent genocide. Those of us who are here in this room uh, and the uh, Yale initiative can themselves call on the US as a state party to hold those who directly and publicly incite to genocide accountable. The second lesson, it's a related one, is that the Nazi Holocaust that which happened particular in Rwanda, which I call the, the horror of the genocide in Rwanda, is that that genocide was preventable. Nobody could say that we did not know. We knew but we did not act. And that's the second lesson. That the Nazi genocide, the Rwandan genocide, what is happening now in Darfur where we know and we are also not acting, been made possible by the bystanders, been made possible by crimes of indifference and by crimes of silence and therefore consequences of inaction. So, the activist in me says the following, and I'm just extrapolating from uh, a national justice initiative against racism and hate that I enunciated as a Minister of Justice. I can make it available as a 13-point activist declaration of what to do. And the first thing is that one needs, you know, moral and political leadership at the top that will clearly not only condemn but act upon uh, this radical uh, evil in our time. And joined with that has to be uh, civil society. So you have a convergence of government acting with civil society in what I call the four Ps, prevention of the evil to begin with, protection, to intervene to protect the innocents if the evil starts to uh, manifest itself in terms of war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, something we must do in Darfur and not Third P, prosecution, bring the perpetrators justice, because one of the tragedies of the the 20th century, and the beginning of the 21st century, can be called the age of atrocity, is also the age of impunity. Few of the perpetrators have been brought to justice in any of the killing fields. The result is that that goes back and acts not as a deterrent to prevent the next killing field, but it encourages the next killing field, because the perpetrators know they can get away with it. And so the third P is prosecution, accountability. And the fourth is partnership. And that is that governments and civil society have to work uh, together to create a critical mass of advocacy uh, with regard to the combating of radical evil. There are other things of which I speak in that article, such as that are crucial. And and that is education is crucial because this state-sanctioned culture of hate begins very often in the early ages in the schools and when it's in the product of radical islam you know in the mosques and in the media and the like and so we need we need that kind of education that is organized around four rubrics sweden exemplified the first that is holocaust and genocide education which teaches young people about the dangers of that of the lessons of the holocaust and genocide and how to avert and combat those early warning signs of cultures of hate, of, of indifference, impunity, and the like. The second is anti-racist education, authentic anti-racist education that does not allow itself to be compromised in having anti-Semitism uh, under the banner of anti-racist education, as I describe. The third is human rights education. Real education and, as the word reason correctly, sensitization, sensitizing uh, people uh, to uh, the importance of the protection of, of human rights. You know, we adopted a Charter of Rights and Freedoms in Canada in 1982. We're on the eve of its 25th anniversary. But it's had a transformative impact, not only on our laws, but on people's lives. If you go around, as I did as a minister in Canada, and ask women representatives of children, minorities, Aboriginal people, the disabled and the like, are you better off now than you were before the Charter of Rights and Freedoms was adopted? The answer is invariably yes, with all its inadequacies. And so, the promotion and protection of of human rights. And the final part is authentic uh, intercultural and multicultural uh, education particularly as we become increasingly, you know, multicultural democracies, not just uh, parliamentary democracies as we are in Canada, but increasingly multicultural uh, democracies, and where we speak honestly in those intercultural uh, uh, dialogues uh, to each other and, and the like. So, uh, my sense is that we need to, yes, have an, an activist approach involving government, involving civil society, organize around those four Ps, involving education invoking and applying the legal system let me give you another activist approach if i may and that is shortly after i was sworn in as minister of justice and attorney general of canada jewish day school that i had attended was firebombed, and this occurred shortly after a growing incidence and intensity not only of hate speech and and hate crimes, but specifically anti-Semitic hate speech and hate crimes in Canada. I was asked in Parliament, you know, what is the government going to do, what is the minister going to do with respect to this hate speech and hate crimes? And I said, by way of response, that we regarded this anti-Semitic hate speech not only as being an assault on the inherent dignity and worth of every human being, as I said before, but as, as specifically singling out the Jews for assault. And we said we will not be silent, we will not be intimidated from acting, we will act and we will seek to consign racism and hatred anti-sentiment to the dustbin of history where it belongs, and then I produced that 13-point uh, initiative. So I think that it's important that uh, we act together, and I didn't go into it category that I have. i just made I can identify the other, just names, just a label of the other forms of new anti-Jewishness. Time does not permit to go into it. I describe state-sanctioned genocidal anti-Semitism, number one, political anti-Semitism, number two, ideological anti-Semitism, number three, the legalized anti-Semitism under the auspices of the UN Human Rights and National Laws, number four. The fifth, I would call, theological anti-Semitism. theological anti-semitism i'm referring to uh, the radical uh, totalitarian uh, muslim anti-semitism that uh, we need to be aware of and not uh, gloss over that's when i say authentic multiculturalism means speaking honestly about these things not patronizing in terms of intercultural uh, dialogues and the like i'm referring to what is the hijacking of Islam by radical Islamists who threaten also other uh, Muslims, but who threaten specifically uh, Israel and and the uh, Jewish people. And there is still the vestiges of, you know, Christian anti-Semitism of which I've elsewhere uh, written about. So theological anti-Semitism, cultural anti-Semitism, and by uh, cultural anti-Semitism I'm referring to the melange of attitudes and innuendos and, and uh, uh, sentiments that taken together uh, speak to that kind of, of, of uh, pernicious uh, chatter that goes on uh, amongst the chattering uh, classes and, and and the elites what I refer to also as that trahison des declare the, the treason of the intellectuals and we have example of example of that and time I did not permit going into it but you may recall the remarks of the French ambassador to uh, the United Kingdom at the time they said why should the world risk another world war because of that shitty little country uh, Israel or as uh, the British journalist Patronolo Wyatt put it anti-semitism and its open expression has become respectable at London dinner tables and I would say elsewhere as well so that's the you know cultural anti-semitism there is uh, the phenomenon of economic anti-semitism economic anti-semitism we've gone through three stages in that economic anti-semitism uh, the first uh, was the classical uh, anti-semitism which involved discrimination against jews and housing and education and employment the second was the application of the uh, arab boycott against israel in its secondary and tertiary Dimensions That is, you have the application, uh, really, of an extraterritorial application by Arab countries of an international, restrictive, and discriminatory covenant against corporations conditioning their trade with Arab countries, like the American corporations, Canadian corporations, conditioning their trade with Arab countries on them not uh, trading uh, uh, or doing business with Israel, known as the secondary boycott. We're not doing business with another corporation that does business with Israel, known as the tertiary boycott, or the most uh, disturbing and, and uh, documented discipline on it, conditioning trade with Canadian and American uh, corporations, and neither hiring nor promoting Jews within the corporation. And now we have the final dimension of the boycott, and that is that the academic boycotts and the discipline divestments and the like, which call for the dismantling of Israel as part of that boycott. So this goes into economic anti-Semitism, and as I say, I, I could go through some of the other Holocaust denial uh, and, and the like, but I'm going to leave it here in case there may be other questions. Yeah. Both of you, either one, both hands are up at the same time. Uh, the question of
2: Zionism uh, is racism. Uh, Anti-Zionists not necessarily anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic. I think that you're, uh, i know it's—it's it's a well-reasoned opinion of yours because you are a, a great student of this subject. But I can't help but say I feel that you're letting the anti-Zionists off the hook. Uh, You—you say earlier that one of the manifestations of anti-Jewishness was uh, not allowing these Jewish people to have their own self-determined state. Uh, and I guess I can't help but having the opinion that Zionism was racism, the the racism part of it that those critics are talking about are the fact that the state is Jewish, not not that, uh, that Israel is uh, is denying their citizens rights, but that the, that the state is Jewish. So I can't help but go back to that point that they are anti-Semitic. They don't want to see the state exist as a Jewish state. They really don't want the Jews to be there at all. Uh, And just to conclude my comment, quoted
1: Martin Luther King but he, I think also I'm not sure whether it was in that same address or perhaps in another made very strong statements that anti-Zionism is anti semitism Yeah, there there is the uh, reference I found the other parts of and Martin Luther King said I haven't found that particular reference, I've heard it quoted Uh, But there are many, you know, respected scholars and people who gave papers at this conference uh, who would say that, you know, anti-Semitism as it has, anti-Zionism as it has evolved, you know, is uh, coincident with uh, anti-Semitism. I've said, I've tried to uh, draw the indices very carefully and I've tried to apply a juridical framework to it and a rights-based approach, which allows for a lot of offensive and uh, unpopular, maybe uh, maybe even scurrilous speech, but only when it starts to cross the line to deny uh, Israel's right uh, to exist or to ascribe uh, qualities uh, to to Israel as if it was the poisoner of the wells or to call openly for Israel's destruction, etc. That's when I say it crosses the line. Anti-Zionism you know, can be anti-Semitism, but not all expressions of anti-Zionism are anti-Semitic. That's a different um, I, I also very much uh the uh, point you were making I did have
2: a question. If you the did not uh, pass on the NGO document to the member states, and the conference was the fourth in a series, which was really called and also to call attention to the implementation of the Convention to Eliminate Racism. And I was curious in your strategy if the Convention to Eliminate Racism, which also has been signed by many member states, including ours, should that people have the same responsibilities under that convention than to genocide or the ICC to address.
1: Racism as a has itself both anti Israel, anti Semitic, or No, you're right. I, I think we have a responsibility to, in, in fact, uh, invoke and apply uh, the remedies under international human rights law, treaty law, customary law. The International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination is an you know, example of, of where, in, in fact, you can use that convention for the purposes of combating you know racist hatred and discrimination calls for you know the kinds of uh, educational initiatives uh, that I mentioned what what happened at at Durban? and Durban was really there were two conferences there was a governmental conference and then there was the NGO conference when uh, some of the pernicious uh, suggestions that were to go into the government document when that didn't work it ended up in the NGO uh, document, and that's been the plan of action and that is, as I wrote recently, became the tipping point for the new anti-Jewishness in the post-Durban universe. But you're right, that convention and uh, the remedial approaches provided by that uh, convention should be invoked
2: and applied to combat anti-Jewishness. Yeah? So a question about uh, some from um Individual that is mindful the leadership of the party to which you are a member, Michael Nadia. Um, how do you fall on the comment that he has just come out with that Israel is guilty of the war crimes? Okay. Okay. So, at least, which I bring this up, not because I believe that the line you draw between what is politically anti Semitic and what is actually anti Semitic
1: is very thin. I'm not sure if Nadia it, is familiar with it or if he even ascribes to the values which he is. Um, I'll tell you I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, among other things, this has been following me since I left uh, yesterday. if you're an academic, one of the good things about academia is you can live in academia and you know go along with your own biorhythm. but if you enter parliamentary life as I did then you're not just an academic you're constrained by what is going on in the parliamentary and political life that could start tracking you as it did to me in Boston where Nadia's comments uh, caught up with me yesterday and uh, here again in New Haven and the thing has escalated I can tell you. Uh, let, let me just say I know Michael Ignatieff uh, I've talked with him about this and this is an interesting case study uh, that needs to be contextualized so as to be understood in the summer during the israel hezbollah war uh, Michael Ignatieff after if you remember the bombing that took place in Kana, where some 28 civilians uh, were killed. And uh, it was also a residential area in which uh, Hezbollah had embedded itself, which is a war crime under international law. Uh, Michael Ignatieff, when asked about it at the time, and he was then one of the ten contenders for the leadership of the Liberal Party. He's now – there are seven left, but he's the acknowledged front-runner answered at the time, you know, that uh, I don't lose sleep over what happened in Kama. Now, this dogged him a bit, uh, and it enraged, uh, in particular, some of his uh, supporters, that he appeared to be so insensitive. And so, uh, two days ago, Michael Ignatieff, in an interview in a Quebec station, that also becomes important because translation plays a role sometimes in these things, Ignatieff in that interview said um, I'm sorry I should never have said that I won't lose sleep over uh, what happened in Kana. I was mistaken and I was insensitive and then went on to say in the course of that interview as it was ascribed to him uh, that uh, what happened in Kana was a work. That set off another Sense of outrage, uh, you know, both by how can the same guy who wouldn't lose sleep over it now call it a war crime, and how can you call it a war crime uh, because uh, Hezbollah is embedded, etc cetera, et cetera. Well, uh, Ignatiev then issued a statement yesterday. Uh, it was a very powerful statement in which uh, he says, in terms of uh, Israel and Hezbollah and the conflict. He says, I just want to say that I intended no false moral equivalence between Israel and Hezbollah. That I believe that Israel is living in a dangerous world in which Iran, Hamas, and Hezbollah seek uh, its destruction and deny Israel's right to exist. And that is, these are Magnavi's words, not mine, uncautionable and must be stopped. Uh, he said, with regard to uh, Hezbollah, uh, that it is a terrorist organization, and he said no country, no democracy like Canada can put a democracy like Israel and a terrorist militia like Hezbollah on the same footing, but Canada has to take sides on behalf of Israel, just as the international community must uh, take sides against those who would deny Israel's right to exist, etc., cetera, et cetera. Good. Powerful statement. Right at the end, you have all this because the media you know, have their own. First of all, it's in the midst of Canadian wedge politics. They say, well, what about Kana, a worker? So he said, you know, I am an unequivocal friend of Israel. I support Israel. I support its right to live in peace and security. I've lived in Israel. I taught in Israel. But I'm also at times a critical friend of Israel. And he reiterated on the Kana thing. Now, I don't regard Michael Ignatieff as coming anywhere near, you know, to uh, an anti-Semite. I would like to think that uh, most people would speak in terms of statements of principle and policy about Israel, uh, Palestinians, uh, Hezbollah, the Middle East, and the like. As Michael Ignatieff said, I disagree with his judgment that Kana was a war crime. I think that that judgment was mistaken. I think Kana was a tragedy. I think Michael Nadeff was right to acknowledge that he was mistaken and insensitive when he said he won't lose sleepover. I think it would be right to call it a tragedy, but wrong to call it a war crime. Uh, In fact, what his statement illuminates is the dilemma that uh, countries like Israel find themselves in asymmetrical warfare, and uh, you have a situation where Hezbollah engages in double criminality. When I say double criminality, first, it deliberately targets uh, and engages in armed attacks against Israeli civilians across international boundaries, as it did you know, on July the, uh, the 12th. And second, it also seeks to demonize Israel by embedding itself in the civilian population in Lebanon so that uh, Israel will inevitably cause uh, casualties uh, by responding, you know, to armed attacks against it. Now, Israel still has responsibility to abide by the precautionary principle to minimize civilian casualties, etc. But the tactics and strategy of Hezbollah is, as Michael have otherwise said, is to provoke Israel into the kind of response that will cause it to be demonized. So. On the particular characterization of uh, what Israel did in Kana as being a war crime, in my view, he was wrong. On the overall context of what he said about the whole issue, he has it right. But the media in the age of gotcha journalism, and I think, you know, your response is an excellent case study, what's going around now is Ignatieff, Kana, war crime, anti-Israel, the chattering emails and the like, uh, anti-Semitic even, I've seen some of it uh, today and before you know gets out of control and as I say, if you say things are anti-Semitic which they are not, people will not believe you when you say things are anti-Semitic and they are. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. Yeah. So just one you can collect questions. Okay, I can take a few and then I'll try to answer them quickly. And then a
0: few minutes, and I'll invite you to a smaller session. Yeah. You were a member of the last liberal government in Canada as an attorney, general,
2: and justice minister. John, I remember earlier saying that the circumstances in the dark reflected what you justified earlier under human and other processes of genocide. And yet, the very same cabinet you we were part of did not because the conditions on the ground in Darfur met, quote, the definition of genocide. Where
1: is the cognitive disconnect? Cognitive disconnect, uh, there is a cognitive disconnect. Uh, it's, it's interesting what you say, the, one of the first public speeches I gave shortly after becoming minister was in Stockholm 2000 January 2004. I was appointed a minister in mid-December 2003. The conference was on the prevention of genocide. I gave one of the keynote addresses. In that address, I said some of the things that I'm saying this evening, and I called Darfur a genocide. I did so within the confines of the Cabinet table without disclosing Cabinet. Uh, secrets, because I was saying so uh, publicly, all I'm saying is I said in cabinet what I said outside. There were views around that table that if you call it a the genocide, then that uh, may less incline the international community to act uh, because of the oblig- obligatoriness under the Genocide Convention. I said precisely, I think that the international community is under an obligation. And interestingly enough, in that discussion came the adoption of the doctrine in Canada of the Responsibility to Protect doctrine, which the United Nations General Assembly adopted in September 17, 2005, and we had rallies on its anniversary, September 17, 2006, saying you can't just have Responsibility to Protect on paper, you can't just have words while we have to in fact sound the alarm we have to act i think that the canadian government while it can point to things that it did and one of the largest contributors with regard to humanitarian assistance and the like i think we did not do two things and they were crucial we did not sound the alarm at every forum at every opportunity and say that this Genocide, by attrition, call it. We called it a crime against humanity. That this is unacceptable. And number two, we did not sufficiently engage ourselves in mobilizing the international community to act. Now, the view was: since we don't have troops, uh, our troops are in Afghanistan, etc., then petitioners must come with clean hands. If we don't have troops, how can we tell others to send troops? My view was we probably could have found troops, and number two, you can still go ahead and make your voice heard and get the international community tax. So to sum up, I think that uh, with regard to Darfur, uh, while we were somewhat better than most of the international community, we nonetheless failed.
3: From a normative angle, how do we go about changing the debate where we make these decisions like you're making? That what is anti Semitism anti Semitism, what is anti Israel policy is anti Israel policy. And secondly, you have these in the Human Rights Commission and other places where you have people bringing up these charges against Israel for human rights violations, but you never address really why they, you think they are bringing these violations up or these alleged violations up. Could you address those? Rules?
1: Yeah, in terms of uh, making the distinction, as I say, I think we need to be able to have a vigorous debate. But those who want to uh, criticize Israel and have every right to do so, its policies or practices and the like, have to themselves uh, make it clear that they will not indulge or acquiesce or in any way uh, sanitize or pass over the other varieties of of clear anti- Anti-Semitism. So one of the other things I sometimes worry about is what I call the exculpatory disclaimer where somebody says if I criticize Israel they'll say I'm anti-Semitic and then they go ahead and say something that is not just the criticism of Israel but is is anti-Semitic. So that's the other side of the coin that we have to uh, guard against. Yes, rigorous uh, debate but guard against you know this kind of exculpatory uh, disclaimer. Uh, the other point about the UN uh, Human Rights uh, Commission and its successor body now, the UN uh, Human Rights uh, Council, part of it is, has to do with simply the politics uh, of, in the international arena. You know, the Islamic Conference of 56 states you know, has a powerful and uniform voice and it is ready at all times to move uh, you know, resolutions against Israel. The United Nations General Assembly, you know, every year, I talked about the, their, uh, the UN Human Rights Commission, but the General Assembly has some 19 to 21 clearly uh, discriminatory resolutions which single out Israel, you know, for differential treatment. Those countries that care about the UN, that care about human rights, that care about international law, should not, as they have been doing Indulging, or acquiescing, or abstaining, or or even sometimes voting in favor of those resolutions. Now, the government of which I was a part, you know, changed the votes on seven of those 19 resolutions. Do I think that that's progress? Very modest progress. I don't think we should have acquiesced in that process at all. As a country, Canada, that cares about the integrity of the UN, cares about human rights and international law. At least that's. Uh, we uh, hold ourselves up to be, we should have said, we're not going to partake of this process. This process is a sham. And it's not only prejudicial to Israel and world jury, it is, as I said, prejudicial to UN, human rights, international law, and not partake in it. And try to mobilize the rest of the international uh, communities as best we can to not indulge, acquiesce, sanitize, uh, etc., cetera, to that kind of pernicious situation. I regret that the UN Human Rights Council which replaced the UN Human Rights Commission, its first three sessions devoted themselves only to one country. Israel, you know, with everything else going on. You know, Sudan and so on. You could not get an emergency session on Sudan, but you were able to have three special sessions on Israel. And that's why I say the real tragedy is that the real human rights violators get exculpatory immunity. Countries uh, like Canada and the like have got to raise their voices and act and say, you know, enough. You know, we're not going to indulge this anymore. Yeah. I know that uh, I, I will. This will be a last one, Trump. Yeah, right. Uh, <clears throat> I think mean, one of the problems, I, I agree
3: with you that, that I don't think that uh, anti Zionism is necessarily anti Semitic, but only for those individuals don't really understand the meaning of the word Zionism. Those who truly understand what Zionism is, and still are opposed to it, I think are in fact anti-Semitic. But there, I think there are many people out there who misinterpret Zionism not as a means of self-determination and the right of Jewish people to return to their ancient homeland, but as in fact a means of displacing others And if they look at the Jews returning to Israel with the intention of transferring the Arab population out, I can understand how they can feel that this was not appropriate. But if you look back in in, in Israel's history, uh, most of the great Zionists have never wanted to do this. Even somebody like Zeb Jabotinsky, who was an extremist, never talked about transferring Arabs out of Israel moving Jews
1: in to get a majority Jewish population. So I think there's been a lot of misinterpretation of what Zionism is, and I think those who have misinterpreted maybe have a reason to believe that it's not a good cause. Well, as I say, when anti-Zionism involves itself in one or four, or other of the following, the denial to the Jewish people of the right to self-determination, a right that is given to all other people, or, uh, denies the right of Israel to exist as a Jewish state or ascribes uh, to Zionism and uh, to Israel you know, criminal epithets uh, such as that Israel and Zionism uh, are seen to be uh, so morally repugnant that uh, Israel as a Jewish Zionist state must necessarily be dismantled. That's when anti-Zionism crosses into uh, anti-Semitism. There were another a number of phenomena of uh, the new anti-Jewishness that I did not discuss today, and your question prompts me that because you had papers in this Yale initiative on them that were uh, excellent papers. I, I, I had occasion to read them, and that's why. I, I, and, and some of them partake of some of the categories or indicators that I mentioned. But uh, uh, for example, I, I didn't go into what I would call manifestations of the new anti-Jewishness as distinct from indicated. A paper here on anti-Semitism on the left, I didn't go into that, and there you'll find where anti-Zionism can shade into anti-Semitism. Uh, there is also an excellent paper by Alvin Rosenfeld on progressive Jewish thought and the new anti-Semitism, where uh, people under the rubric of progressive leftist. Uh, anti-Zionist, but not anti-Semitic politics, nonetheless go into uh, anti-Semitism. Uh, there are the papers on European uh, anti-Semitism that uh, were presented here by Manuel of uh, And there is, of course, the whole uh, radical Islamist anti-Semitism, of which my colleague Robert Wistrich has written about, calling it a clear and present danger. So these are the four manifestations that I could have gone into here, but then none of us would have ever left, or at least I would still be here, you all would, uh, <laughs> would have left. But uh, at least your, your question allows me to say that uh, I didn't cover uh, a number of issues and you could logically and properly critique me for doing so. Some I didn't because they were part of a series and I didn't want to duplicate it. And I wanted to highlight the express Indicators of the new anti-Jewishness as we develop an analytical approach to identifying and monitoring and addressing and redressing the new anti-Jewishness. So we will have some indicators of the new anti-Jewishness in the same way that we had indicators for the older classical or traditional.
0: About how your old alma mater in Montreal and the Hebrew Day School was burnt down? I remember one of the things that I think started me thinking about creating an initiative and in other people. I was in Montreal when this took place and I was with my sister who has three children in the Hebrew Day School in question. And watching her and her friends sort of network and talk about what they're going to disclose to the children and how they're going to explain to the children that their school burnt down and what's safe and what's not safe. And watching this sort of, you know, unfold in a, in our home, in our living room, really drove home the the importance of dealing with these issues which are, as you point out, uh, taking place throughout much of the world these days. So I think you've inspired us and and, and put in front of us many challenges some serious and significant work uh, for the years to
1: come. So thank you. Okay. Sure. If I may, I, I hate to take you more time, but there was one thing I'd like to read into the record you prompted it by talking now about the Jewish, yeah, Jewish Day School. Anything that I said you know, may not have been that important. There's a statement made by a public affairs commentator in Canada, a journalist, which is outstanding, on the firebombing. I'd just like to read it read it into the record, and I think it, it, it gives us food for thought. As I said, when the bombing of the Jewish Day School that I attended took place, you know, the prime minister called it a, a cancer there was. You know, the kind of, of, of moral indignation. But look. At, let me read you this statement. I, I think it, it's something that will give us uh, some uh, reflective uh, appreciation of this whole issue. And this is in Rex Murphy, his statement. He made it on April 6, 2004. Commenting on the bombing of a Jewish school library in Montreal yesterday, Prime Minister Paul Martin, who was at the time, said, and he quotes him, the assault was not directed against the Jewish community of Montreal, but against all Canadians, unquote. I know what the Prime Minister meant by saying that. It's a noble thought that we're all diminished by violence and hate, that an attack on any group of Canadians for whatever reason is an attack on the civil and moral code that makes us Canadians. In the abstract, the Prime Minister was right. But, and and this goes back to Susan's question. But what was the name of the school that was actually bombed? Well, it's the United Talmud Torah School in Montreal. The Talmud Torah. I cannot see how it is possible to get more Jewish, this is like a non jew right, more quintessentially expressive of Jewishness than in the combination of those two words that refer to the absolute foundational text and commentaries of the Jewish faith. So let's be very clear. The bombing, not a word we're used to hearing in Canada, I note in passing, was directed very particularly at the Jewish community in Montreal. At its Jewishness, and to walk away from its immense Particularity is to diminish its very concrete outrageousness. It wasn't a school, it was a Jewish school. And it wasn't any Jewish school, but the United Talmud Torah School. It was bombed because of its intimate identification with being Jewish. The second part of the crime was a note that accompanied it, which read that the bombing was prompted by the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and that more attacks were being planned. Now, I know that there are very strong opinions on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and with opinions as opinions, neither I nor any other Canadian can have any real problem. But there really does seem to be a tilt that some of those who most see themselves as critics of the Israeli side of this conflict, and please note, I said some of those, seem to think that they have some extra warrant or righteousness in how far they can go to express their, their detestation of Israel's policies, its government, and then by extension, of Jews. And as is the case in the bombing of the Talmud Torah Library in Montreal, Canada, they also feel that tormenting and intimidating Jews anywhere is an earned license because of where they stand on the Israeli Palestinian conflict. So we have swastikas on Jewish homes in Placid Toronto. We have the upsurge in assaults on Jews in Europe. And we have all too frequently in demonstrations almost everywhere in the world the placards and chants equating Israel and its government with its own demonic anti type, the Nazism of Adolf Hitler. We have, in effect, the Holocaust, the mightiest engine of ethnic cleansing the world has ever seen, thrown in the face of the people who were its target. I salute the Prime Minister for the civic civic nobility of what he had to say, but by attempting to generalize what happened in Montreal yesterday, he has, in effect, diffused its horror. It was a piece of hatred for the Jews of Montreal. It was an expression on Canadian soil of that simmering anti-Semitism, that takes some camouflage, some protective coloring from asserting a solidarity with the Palestinian cause. Anti-Semitism springing from whatever source is the most toxic political virus in the world. That's something we've already learned in that other school, the school where six million went to their death. I mean, I thought that this was an incredible statement as to why you have to approach this issue openly, honestly, with integrity, call it as it is, and then do what is necessary to combat it. Thanks.
0: So, uh, that was Rex Murphy of the CBC Canada. So, just to point out, next week, Jonathan Brent, who is the editorial director of Yale University Press and a professor at Bard College, will be speaking on the situation in Russia, and that will be at ISPS at 77 Prospect Street at 415. And you're all welcome to join us for a small reception.